Hi, and welcome back. This is Second Rate Film School. I'm Andrew Wass, and I have a very special guest star here today. Welcome, Ben Rock. Howdy, neighbor. How's it going? <laughs> very good. Yeah, very good. We found out we live very close nearby, so we're still quarantining. We're not going to be yeah. near each other, so... But we yeah, we're, we're on Zoom, but uh, but I could almost just lean out my window and scream really loud, and you might be able to pick some of it up. Yeah, probably. So, um, yeah, just to fill people in who might not who know... Um, your involvement you were the production designer on the Blair Witch Project then you were involved with um, writing producing and directing some of the um, mockumentaries that came out for the first one and then the sequel as we'll get into Um, and then you've gone on to have a pretty successful career on your own Um, you just had Video Palace on Shudder the book version just came out if I'm correct Uh, yeah just dropped this week so very um, excited about the Video Palace book I'll put a link below for people to check that out, um, and you so, could get a you could get a third Blair Witch score if you asked Mike Manello to come on because he would love to talk about that. And the Video Palace book is pure Manello. Well, there we go. Yeah, I'm slowly turning into a Blair Witch Project channel. This was um, never like the actual intention, but hey, you know what? I'll just keep getting <laughs> people on. We'll get Dan Karcher on eventually. Uh, <laughs> so, well, either way, you're the second one. So you still pretty top tier, you know. It's not getting old for the <laughs> fan base yet. So again, yeah, thank you for doing this, and um, of course, let's jump on in. So being the production designer on um, this movie had to be interesting. So like, what was it like for the most part? Like, how hands on were you from like day to day? There, there was virtually no crew. Um, you know, I I did have uh, an art director that was part of my crew, Rick Moreno. And um, and I don't even know what his official title was, but uh, Fahad Vania, who came out and helped us build all the stick men and, uh, you know, Ed, Ed's uh, Ed's wife, Steph, uh, Ed's wife, uh, Steph's sister, Carolyn, uh, Dan, Dan's wife, Julia, Greg. That's about it. I mean, uh, oh, and Tony Cora, actually, who's Ed's cousin. Um, and uh, actually uh, two of Ed's friends. Uh, Lonnie and I'm, I'm blanking on the other person's name. He's going to, he's going to beat me up, but, um, it's been a long time. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah, I mean the crew, the crew is tiny. I remember there was a movie that I'd worked on that you've, I guarantee you've never seen, um, just, uh, maybe six, eight months before we made Blair Witch. It was called the pack and it was, uh, actually it's probably over a year before I made, uh, Blair Witch, but, um, it, uh, which stands for prefabricated animalistic cybernetic killer. And I was a makeup effects artist before I worked on Blair Witch. And uh, I made the monster for that movie. And I remember the first day asking somebody like, hey, do we have any PAs? And uh, Kristen Bixler, who was the production designer, said, yeah, they're all called department heads. And that was definitely uh, Blair Witch, where it's like, you know, you need something done, just go do it. Because um, the real core team, like, we were there prepping for a month. And so like Rick Moreno was there to be the art director, but he, you know, like I think he had a job or something like there, there were only a few, a handful of us who like our full-time job was just making this movie. And that would have been Ed, Ed, Dan, Greg, Neil Fredericks and me really, that, that would have been the whole, the whole team. Obviously it was very guerrilla style and, you know, it came out great. And I uh, remember hearing um, an interview. I was listening to it right before your, um, we did this where you're saying that, had you guys known like where the movie was going to go that you would have like possibly screwed it up because that would have been like a lot of pressure on you guys. So, I mean, it worked out great and I cannot imagine this movie being 
different in the slightest and it just I, like i guarantee you if we had any idea that it would even be seen by anybody we would have screwed it all up like we would have second and third and 25 thought our thought every decision and we would have run everything through the filter and tried to make everything be everything to everyone and we would have screwed the whole movie up there you know i think part of what made it freeing for all of us was that there really wasn't very much money on the line and um you know, and I was one of the people getting paid to work on it, but I think they were paying me three fifty a week. And, um, uh, you know, it, it, it was just, it was kind of like, Hey, let's, let's try this. So it, and, and the, uh, environment that Ed, Dan and Greg all kind of made was kind of encouraging that, like, let's steer into, let's just, let's just try this out. And if we fuck everything up, then, you know, well, you know, better luck next time. <laughs> You know, we that I, I think if, if I, you know, like the stick man, for instance, if I would have thought that that was going to be, you know, that they were going to be making bumper stickers with that on it, I probably would have put a lot more thought into it. <laughs> and I'm glad I didn't. Yeah, well, and it actually led into my question. I was going to ask. Um, so what was the process of creating the stick man? Was it like in the script described as they find a totem or just they find some weird shit and, you know, they told you to have at it? So. Uh, I don't just sit here with this on my desk, but I was literally talking to somebody about horror today. So I happen to have the book, the book that I, uh, that I, that sort of inspired it. I would lie and say, this isn't usually on my desk, but this has been on my desk for a while. <laughs> um, it's called, uh, Magical Alphabets by Nigel Pennick. And this is the very book that I used. Um, so, uh, in, in the, in, in the script, as it were, there really wasn't a script. There was a, like a treatment. Um, a, a very detailed treatment. It was probably like 40 something pages long, but you know, basically it was described that they, you know, we're going to find these, these figures or totems. I forget exactly what it said. Um, and Dan had in like Adobe illustrator or something had come up with this design that was really cool. Um, but it was like bundles of sticks with twine wrapped around it. And it was, it was a complicated thing. And, uh, in, in, in our poverty, uh, making this with no money, I was like, I don't, I don't have a a warehouse or a truck or anything. I, I sort of feel like if they would have pushed me, I would have maybe figured out a way to do it. But it's like we needed a a line, you know. We needed to have like employees. <laughs> we needed to have a crew make make these things. We needed an assembly line to do it. And there was no way that we were going to have that. And I had to come up with a way that you could basically you know, go into the woods with virtually nothing, you know, basically uh, uh, an overpriced ball of twine and a pair of scissors, and you could make as many of these as you wanted to. And um, and so I'd gotten this book um, because it, it was research, uh, because the the letters on the, um, the, the words on the outside of the windows and doors inside Rustin Parr's house at the end are in a, a language called Transitus Fluvii. And that's uh, like a, a, a language of witchcraft that's derived from Hebrew. Um, some people thought we used runes, but we didn't. But um, I was looking at the book here. This is uh, page 79 of the actual book. And if you look right here at this illustration, uh, you can sort of see where the stick man is, right? Can you yeah. see it? Yeah, I can see it. Yeah. I mean, it's built into a structure and it's supposed to be three dimensions and I two-dimensionalized it. And, you know, it it, it, it didn't. I, I just I just kind of had a flash when I looked at that page and I actually 
had looked at that page and I remember I was driving down the road and it occurred to me how to make it. And I pulled over and I, I'm a pack rat, so I might still have the notebook somewhere. But on a like a yellow legal pad, I sketched out the stick man, then uh, went over to the to Stephanie's uh, condo where we were all staying in Germantown, Maryland, and went into the woods and found some sticks and made one. And you can find this video. Ed was completely unimpressed with it and kind of made fun of me for it. But and and uh, um, I feel like I did what no production designer should do, which is like I didn't get clarity. Like, oh, could you, you don't like it? Well, let's come up with. Let me go make seven designs, and we'll find the one you like. It, I just kind of stayed with that. You know, that was the design. Like, I just knew that that was the design, um, which you know should have gotten me fired but anyway we we just we just stayed with it and honestly i thought that they all hated it until i saw the sundance poster and it was on the sundance poster uh until that and so it was years later i was not years but like two years later i was like oh oh you guys actually like this design um but uh you know that that's sort of the the genesis of it yeah well and it's um crazy because like you said you know it's on bumper stickers and I mean, really outside the close-up shot of Heather from the testimonial and then the final yeah. you know, shot of Mike in the corner, it's easily the most identifiable like thing of the movie. And then it's the one thing that bridges the comics, the um, video games, the um, act books, the sequels, that the yeah. stick man is there. So it's... um very crazy and you know that it's funny to hear that like ed was like kind of like eh, whatever so i mean why you, you can find it- the video ed, ed says something to you i'm sitting there and you'll see me i'm like 25 years old or whatever and i'm wearing a seven mary three shirt like a maroon seven mary three shirt because it was the 90s and um and ed uh ed says that looks like a bunch of sticks tied together and and you can see in my face i'm like oh like I was sad, like I, I, cause I really believed in that design and I think Ed might've just been fucking with me. I like to think he um, was, but we'll, we'll never know. We'll never, we'll never know. know. We'll never know unless we ask him. Yeah. I'm not going to bother. Go yeah, on. No. Um, so, but why do you think, um, like it's lingered so much that like it became so like iconic is just cause that scene where there's dozens of them is creepy with the black and white. Like I know they said that in the commentary, like all oh, this, this is creepy, but do you think there's something else with it or just it was one of the few things like you can't put a pile of rocks on a poster and have it translate across? <laughs> I, the think, other I, I mean, I think that, I think that in, in the process of making it, they were uh, they they were uh, they got Stockholm syndrome. No, I mean, I think they liked it. If they if they really didn't like it, he would have made me change it or yeah. Dan would have. Um, what I meant with like the I should have um, clarified with the fans in general and like how, why it's become such a big aspect of the franchise even beyond like what you guys have no longer been involved like in the 2016 sequel that becomes a big part of killing the one character off is that's her totem it kills her when they break it i mean here's the thing i i can't explain why something became uh popular with people at all um i will say that um that i when i first had the idea for it i i knew that it was the right thing um, like I, I, I felt it. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. Like I, I, I just really had a, a strong belief that it was the right way to go. Um, and I think that for whatever reason, um, you know, it's, it's, it's creepy simplicity is, is its power. Um, in that it is something you could make out of shit in the woods. If it had been a very complicated, uh, totem, that looked like it was made by an art department with, you know, expertise in something 
which I had none of. I don't have an expertise in making stuff like that. Uh, I think it might have, you know, it's, it's the same reason why, like, you know, uh, a creepy kid writing in a red crayon on the wall is always frightening. You know, there's like something about the simplicity and the primitiveness of it. Um, and uh, and so to me, like a lot of the scares, like even the kids handprints, which that was really Dan's idea on the wall in the in the house. Um, uh, th- those things like really hit you on a primal level. So if I can theorize, which I've never really done, I would say that was it. It's it's just uh, it's it's primal. It's simple. It's obviously a figure you've never the, I don't, to my knowledge, no one had ever made a human figure exactly that way. But when you look at it, you're like, well, it's kind of inevitable. It's just, you know, four pieces of freaking sticks and some twine. It's very easy to make. Yeah. Well, and I think that, again, that segues perfectly into my next question. So I'm, I'm leading you down the path that I want. This is great. All right. Um, so I, I think, like you said, you know, it, it's simplicity. It makes it creepy. I mean, that shot when they come into the clearing and they see it, it's like that is like genuinely disturbing to me still, even though like I know like on the contrary, they're joking like, oh, it was a laid back day. We're all, you know, making it, you know, when they made the one that Ed dubs Chewbacca, like, ah, uh, you yeah. know, making jokes about. But it's like it's genuinely disturbing. And I think that's what makes the um, first movie compared to the sequels and then found footage, a lot of found footage movies in general um, why it makes it so much better is that it's simple. You don't see anything definitively, you know, supernatural. That's like, oh my god, this is exact proof. You know, if like they were like, you know, hundreds of these things that you spent like a million bucks on, like it wouldn't have been nearly as creepy well, as there twenty were, of these. There things. were a lot of them there, and actually, I will say this: uh, well, the day that we were making them, or the way the day we were hanging them, Fahad and I were out there making them, and then at a certain point, we went and got lunch, and then we came back, and we couldn't find them. And we're at the same field that we were in and we're like walking around, walking around. And I'm like, where the fuck are these things? And I'm looking and I'm looking and I'm looking. And then I'm like, oh, there's one. And then as soon as I realized there was one, I realized they were everywhere around me. Now, I'd made them. I wasn't creeped out, but it was it was, it was a weird phenomenon to be like, oh, there's there it is. Holy shit. They're everywhere. What the fuck? And and I think that that uh, that that. Uh, that definitely lent some creepiness to it, but also the like. It doesn't matter how laid back we were making them; it's the fact that the actors didn't know that they were going to find them. And yeah. I keep I've said this a bunch, and I really feel like this is the thing that a lot of found footage movies miss, which is they want it both ways. They want to write a script with like snappy dialogue, and it feels like 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 you're making a movie and 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 all that stuff and what we, i mean there's probably a way to split the difference and not make people stay in the woods for 8 days and starve them and do all the sadistic shit that we did but um but uh but i do think that part of the strength of of Blair Witch when i watch it and i this is stuff i can't take any credit for this is all Ed Dan and Greg really um is that you're watching basically a real documentary. You, you know, these people yeah. are, yeah, they are creating characters and yeah, they're acting. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't say that there isn't a performance aspect to it, it, but it's performance like you were doing a LARP or something. But the truth is they don't know what they're going to walk into. They never did. Um, they were given, uh, Ed and Dan gave them kind of oblique notes that were un, that didn't that didn't tip the hand of what they were going to find. And so when they're filming something, they're seeing it for the first time. So you, I feel like in your bones, you know when you're watching footage of someone seeing something for the first time. And I think that when 
found footage movies try and write snappy, you know, uh, you know, Aaron Sorkin sounding dialogue, it's never going to work as a found footage movie because that's just not how people talk off the cuff. And a good found footage, um, uh, to me, relies on 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 finding a sense of authenticity and that that superseding anything to do with the writer taking pride in their uh fantastic wordsmithery if that makes sense yeah well and that's the thing i obviously um, book of shadows wasn't found footage but the um 2016 one was found footage but watching that and i uh, actually watched blair witch project for the first time when that movie came out so I watched both movies like back to back and it's like, oh, like I see, you know, like the same structure is there. But it's like, yeah, I mean, in the 2016 one, like someone will say a witty line of dialogue and then someone like turns to the camera like they're in the office. And it's like, it's a funny line, but it doesn't feel nearly as visceral as Mike making a joke. And then like, you know, yeah. that's them like actually reacting to like them laughing at like I always um, point to the scene when they're. By the fire on the, I think it's the first night when they're doing the Gilligan's Island discussion. They had no beer on the island, man. If they had had beer, they would have had like big ass orgies. <laughs> you're you're kind of like the captain, and Mike's kind of like your Gilligan. The captain was fat, though. Well, okay, let's call it a thin captain. Let's not call it the captain anymore, you illiterate TV people. It's the skipper. <laughs> 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 if someone scripted that that would sound stupid but that felt real because it was real yeah i mean i think it's hard to script that kind of stuff Uh, but i also think it would be really really hard to go to a studio and ask for millions of dollars to make a movie the way we made a a movie you know like um i don't i don't know i mean i am not uh going going to compare us to like the the movies that always inspired me, like, you know, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Night of the Living Dead and, you know, early Cronenberg and stuff like that. Um, you know, those, those movies that I loved, I loved, you know, a lot of them are from the 60s and 70s and, and obviously a bunch from the 80s. Um, but I think that what I love about those is like if you gave a studio $40 million and said make the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it would never feel as dangerous as toby hooper's right yeah like and it and there's something powerful about you don't know the you don't feel safe and i feel like in the blair witch project um the act it feels like exactly what it is you know there's really only one gimme that we're asking the audience to not give a shit about which is that Heather, Mike, and Josh could have left the woods whenever they felt like it and they also knew who was fucking with them and that was their performance was that and they're um, like, I, th- I think that it all it all comes out of that. But like when we wake them up in the middle of the night, they really did get woken up in the middle of the night. We really did wait till three in the morning and sneak up to their tent like and they were asleep and we woke them up. So they were acting like people who just woke up. They weren't acting like actors pretending to just wake up. They were human beings who just woke up. And, and there's a difference. Also, also like, you know, when you're when you're dealing with like millions of dollars and stuff like that, you know, and you're going to like, let's say you're going to cast the Mary Brown character, uh, the woman who played Mary Brown, Mary Brown, Patty, she was actually the art department PA. So she was like helping me fix up the house. And she was a character. She was she was uh, she was a very interesting uh, person. And she had a specific crazy way that she told a story that was very engaging. And um 
And I feel like if you were to go through a casting process with a high-end casting director, like if you got Meryl Streep to play that part, she would do a wonderful job, but she, there wouldn't be something as uh, idiosyncratic as what Patty gave us. Um, you know, and obviously Ed and Dan directed Patty and talked to her and, you know, all that stuff. But I feel like a lot of those, a lot of the, a lot of the um, just happy accidents that happened because we didn't have a plan B. We didn't have a plan A, which was throw money at the problem. It was always like, okay, we're going to, we're flying by the seat of our pants for the next, you know, month. Let, let's figure out the best way to do all this crazy, crazy stuff we want to do. And, uh, and, and so I, I feel like a lot of times those idiosyncratic decisions get filtered out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, and that um, leads into um, now I want to talk about the mockumentaries um, for TV that, yeah, the cast for all those were great. The guy who played um, Bill Barnes, who's like across all of them, um, was great. Yeah. You know, like the old timer who kind of does believe it, kind of doesn't. Um, I'm blanking on the other older gentleman who was like the skeptic historian and all that. And then yeah. when we get into um, Burkittsville 7, like all the different people, you know, like when the main guy um, who was like, trying to like uncover this you know story of kyle brody like it's just like the perfect like middle-aged kind of like you know sad sack you know like that guy was actually his name's john maynard and we all knew him in orlando like he he uh he moved to la before i did um but he was in the first film i ever made um and uh he's just uh, john's just an amazing actor yeah no that's the thing he um like plays very well like the guy who it's like it's clear being a filmmaker, you know, isn't his um, active, like, you know, he's not a director, like, you know, he's trying his best to be in the industry and like, he's got like this obsession and it's like a very well done performance. And then you have, um, when you get into the you know, scenes where you're shooting, like the behind the scenes of the white enamel, when it's showing yeah. like the um, asylum in the sixties, like all those people are like, you know, they could have been like over the top and all that, but it's like, you know, each one of them, the guy complaining about Richard Nixon um, and Kissinger. That guy's great. Monty Bain is his name, and he's an amazing actor, and he's been in a lot of stuff. Because of Richard, Mulehouse, Nixon, and Mr. Kissinger, I am here. They're hearing right now what I'm saying. They don't fool me. They're hearing what I'm saying. The mailman was bugging, yeah. He's just not looking at our mail. He's bugging this whole place. So the guy who plays Kyle Brody, his name is David Grammer. And that guy is just magic. He he really is magic, and he's the sweetest, warmest, most wonderful guy. If you meet if you meet him and talk to him, um, but he he was. I don't know who we would have cast if David hadn't walked in the room. I don't think there was a, a, a second choice. Never given. Never given. Yeah, well, I mean, they're all, like, just perfect for their roles, yeah, so, yeah, he, him is, like, the crazed, um, deranged, potentially possessed by a witch, we'll get into that, um, and all that, the guy who, um, played Rustin Parr, which I actually, when I was researching, um, this, I found out, you know, this shows you the difference between what you guys did and then what, um, Book of Shadows did, you know, that guy was great as Rustin Parr, but there's a guy who is supposed to be Rustin Parr in, um, Book of Shadows, he's the yeah. guy in the convenience store, yeah, that guy's in um, My Cousin Vinny. He's the one in um, the courtroom where Joe Pesci's like, oh, you know, you saw them through this dirty window. And it's like, he does a good job. It's like, I don't believe he's a serial killer. Look at the other guy. It's like, oh, that guy butchered a bunch of children and buried them in the basement. Why did you do it, Mr. Parr? I heard voices in my head. I 
Well, that guy, uh, um, the original guy was like the gardener at the Haxon office or something. And they, I think they tried to get him to come out and be in Book of Shadows and they couldn't find him. And uh, to my knowledge, Matt Blasey, who has tracked down literally everybody in every, you know, everybody who is on camera or did anything on Blair Witch has talked to, uh, to Matt at this point. Uh, could not find that guy. Couldn't even find out what happened to him. Like, you know, he, he may have passed away or something, but there's no obituary. There's like nothing. And, and <laughs> for real, but like even, you know, so they're making book of shadows. What? Two years after uh, the, the Rustin Parr stuff was shot at that prison. Couldn't, no one could find him. I mean, he, he really was great though. Like he, he really, you know, there's something disturbing and, you know, in his, in his performance. I, I wasn't actually there for that shoot. So I, I didn't meet that guy. Um, but, uh, you know, cause that was part of uh, curse of the Blair, Witch, and some yeah. of curse of the Blair, Witch was stuff that was actually made for the original movie. Cause the original movie was going to be cutting back and forth. Um, fr- uh, it, it was going to be more of an investigative, uh, documentary, uh, like, you know, freezing the shots of Heather, Mike and Josh and moving in and stuff. And when they put all, first, they put everything together and they realized it just worked that way. Awesomely. So some of the stuff that had been made for Blair, Witch ended up in curse of the Blair, Witch, Blair, Witch, not Blair, Witch, the, the would... make a Blair, Witch foundation. <laughs> oh, God. Just get stick men. And that's what you <laughs> wish on. Um, well, yeah, and it's great. And again, we're going into these now. You wrote on them, obviously directed um, Burkittsville 7 and then mm-hmm. um, Shadow. I have had to have it written down because they all have so so goddamn similar names. I'm <laughs> getting them confused. <laughs> um, but yeah, they're all very interesting. And like, you know, each one had its own different purpose. You know, Curse and um, Sticks and Stones kind of just set up the general mythology of, hey, you know, watch this before you go in. And then. Um, same with Shadow for the second one, but Burkittsville Seven I think is the most interesting one because, technically speaking, I don't think you. I mean, you don't need to watch any of them to go in. They're all enjoyable movies without it. But I think the other ones kind of lead more into the plot and setting up the general mythology. But Burkittsville Seven is laser focused into this one aspect, and it's because of that that's my favorite one personally oh, of them. It's yeah, also I, my favorite. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I don't know. I'll always have a soft spot for Curse of the Blair Witch because uh, uh, that was just pure uh, Mike Minello marketing genius right there. I, I actually, I, I mean, I was already living in L.A. and they were all still in Florida when, when that got made. So I was writing it and Mike was uh, producing it back in Florida. But, uh, you know, so, so to me, that was a really fun kind of seat of your, seat of your pants experience. But with Burkittsville 7, what happened was... Um, uh, the original Blair, which was getting ready to premiere on Showtime and Showtime wanted something like Curse of the Blair Witch. But between Artisan and Showtime, this is one of those cases. And I've had this happen. Uh, you know, I've directed a few commercials and sometimes this happens on this where it's like the client and the agency want something different and you have to figure out how to split the baby and make everyone happy. Um, and uh, in this case, what Art, uh, Showtime wanted something like Curse of the Blair Witch. Artisan didn't want to give away anything from the sequel. Showtime didn't want a retread of Curse of the Blair Witch. They didn't want just another, hey, here's the mythology of the Blair Witch thing. Sci-Fi Channel had already done that. 
So they kind of came to me with that. And uh, and I got the opportunity at all. Like they originally went back to the Haxon guys and they were all working on their next thing at the time. And um, and but they said, hey, you know, you know, maybe consider Ben. And uh, I was really excited to do it. Uh, and I went in and, and pitched them this idea, which uh, to this day is one of the weirdest ideas I've ever pitched anybody. And they bought it. I, I still kind of can't believe it. They flew me to New York. I had to go pitch John Hageman, who was the head of marketing for Artisan. So they flew me to New York, put me up in a hotel, had a had a fancy pants meeting with, with uh, some executives. Met Amir Malin, who was the, the CEO of Artisan at the time. And uh, pitched to me idea, and I remember Hageman being sort of like, "Yeah, why the fuck not?" And uh, and you know, my idea was instead of go like, let's just not talk about the movie. Let's talk. Let's have a central character who thinks the movie's stupid, and and uh, let's go into a piece of the mythology. And the Rustin Parr stuff, I thought was, it's almost accessible because it's in the 1940s and there's film footage of it. So, you know, like somebody who was related to someone who was involved might still be alive, you know, in the late 90s. And uh, and like, let's make a documentary and let's make a documentary where someone's contradicting the canon. And I have a kind of a bug up my ass when it comes to uh, canon and Blair Witch anyway, Um, because uh, and this is just my opinion, obviously, like when the Blair Witch video game came out, like somebody from Lionsgate or something declared that it was canon. And I'm like, good for you. But um, to me, it's folklore. So if you could go back to tell the origin story, I would love to see that Ellie Kedward had nothing to do with it. She's just the name that got stuck on it. That's how folklore often works. So to me, that that's a more interesting route. So I love to have an idea of, of somebody who would just contradict the story that we'd already told about this terrible serial killer, Rustin Parr, and how he saw an old lady ghost. What if it was the kid? What if the what what if this kid talked him into doing it? What if this kid turned out to be fucking crazy years later? And uh, in film school, the scariest film I'd ever seen, probably in my life up until that point, was a documentary called Titicut Follies, which is by a, a filmmaker named Frederick Wiseman, and it's made in uh, Massachusetts in a real mental institution. I believe it was in 1962. And uh, and and I showed them Titicut Follies and I was like, I want to make something that feels like this. And they went for it. And I sort of it's just a crazy thought that I could walk into a studio in Hollywood and say, like, you know, that 1962 documentary that I saw in film school. Check this out and that they would go along with it. But but Titicut Follies was uh, more disturbing than most horror movies because it really does have a, a very realistic depiction of you know schizophrenia and you know it was a it was a shot at a prison for the criminally insane so it's like you know the the people there are crazy but then the way that they're treated by the guards and the you know like the the inhumanity on display there was even more disturbing than anything any of the inmates would have said and i kind of like the idea of also having the the grown-up version of kyle brody be kind of sad and sympathetic in a way even though he's obviously you know not right exactly and that's the thing and you know i like what you said going to the canon briefly um the oni comics um that i may or may not do a video on one day when i get a little further away from 15 blair witch project videos in a month (laughs) um i've what i find interesting is the one you know is you know again lore from the it's a standalone comic and it's um some crazy person you know, got possessed by the witch and wrote this all stuff all down and they go into Ellie Kedward and 
implied maybe there is something in the woods before, but it's like, okay, well, the guy's crazy. Maybe he's making it up. And then there was another um, comic, I think it was the second or third issue of the Chronicles series they did, where they have the framing devices. This story is being told by multiple people around Burkittsville, and they're all like mm. getting it a little bit different from each other. And that's the thing. It's like, I try and think of urban legends from my neck of the woods, and it's like, yeah, everyone who tells the story, it's slightly different. And I think that's what makes it so yeah. especially Burkittsville 7 so cool is because it's like okay we're gonna we've heard this version had you know he been walking around the town and they interviewed um the main guy from this instead of the older guy um it's in Blair Witch Project who have gotten a completely different story and that's so fascinating and again I love you know like you said he's shitting on the first movie or the movie um there's only the one yeah. at the time and it's I think in my head canon is this was made in response to the kids going missing and or, um, the college students going missing in the woods, drumming up Blair Witch to a national level. And they're like, hey, we'll finally tell your Kyle Brody story. But you got to talk about the Blair Witch at the beginning. So it's like exactly. this, this guy's like <laughs> trying to get through this as quickly as fucking possible. He's like, fine to talk about Kyle Brody. Okay, some kids went missing in the woods. It's bullshit. Okay, move on to my thing. And then yeah, exactly. you never talk about it again. And I always tell people why I like this document or mockumentary so much is it's like watching a documentary about the son of Sam. Not one moment would you actually take it seriously that there was a dog telling him what to do. And, you know, not one moment in this is there the actual, we believe there was a witch who told Rustin Parr what to do, you know, and it's, you know, you can watch it from a balanced perspective of there was no witch, this Kyle Brody kid was evil and crazy and was able to convince them, or they're both innocent victims you know, being possessed by the Blair Witch, that it works on both levels of this is just a true crime doc. And I actually was watching it um, a couple of weeks ago and my roommate um, walked in on me watching it. He sat down, was watching it for a while. And like, he then, like they said, Burkittsville. And he's like, wait a minute. And like, he's Googling like the, like the names. And then he's like, oh, this is about the fucking Blair Witch. I thought this was real. <laughs> he's like, nice. this is, this is, yeah. And it, it's pretty damn commi- it's a well, that, it's that, making that's a high murder. compliment. Well, you know, I mean, I really appreciate that. And when you talk about kind of everyone having a different story, that's something that in everything like this and we did this on Video Palace as well. Uh uh every interview when when we're doing kind of the formal sit down interviews with with characters, uh at the audition and then when we're filming, same thing. We give everybody like a, it's like usually a two two page brief on the character. And it's, you know, sort of like a paragraph about who they are and what their background is. And then here's your story. And the story is sort of what they're there to tell you about. And I encourage them to elaborate on stuff or to add stuff from their own personal life. And then in the interviews, and we did, they did this in, in uh, Curse of the Blair Witch, and they did this in Burkittsville 7 and Shadow, and I've done it on a few other projects where, you know, you basically cast actors who can just kind of come across like themselves and and just kind of tell you their yarn like if I was telling like me telling you the story of making the Blair Witch right like uh, if I tell if I talk to you and somebody else in the same day about it I'm going to tell roughly the same story but it's not going to be word for word and uh, you know based on the stuff you're picking up on based on the mood I'm in based on whatever and so when we bring these people in and interview them, we treat it like a real interview and then we edit it like a real interview. So that means you get, you know, you're, you're only in, in Burkittsville seven, somebody might only have, you know, three or five minutes at most of screen time in the whole thing. Um, but we interviewed them for like 30, 40 minutes. So we have a lot of stuff from which to pull. And even the way that you edit 
any documentary footage of someone, I feel like to our ears makes it sound authentic because of the way when you're cutting a documentary, you could, they call it Frankenbiting. When you like pull the gaps out or rearrange something they say to make it more clear or whatever to the audience, like hopefully you're not doing it uh, to change the meaning of what they're saying, but you're refining what they said using editing. And, um, and so you're doing that on these as well. And it kind of cues the audience. Like that's, that's how a real one sounds. That's not, I, I, I didn't script every line that every character said I scripted what they talked about, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, and I think a um, good example, and even though I still enjoy them is, um, for the um, Zack Snyder Dawn of the Dead movie, they had some special features where they had um, one was Andy, the gun owner um, from mm-hmm. the gun shop that was across the parking lot. He had a video diary and, you know, it was good, but yeah, it felt a little scripted. He's like, oh, I'm burning zombies. And like, it's very clear they filmed this after the fact and like, okay, what did his character do in these scenes where we didn't have him interact that he's got to fulfill point A, point B, point C to get to the end. And then the other was a series of fake news clips showing you know the apocalypse zombie apocalypse breaking out again well made but it felt very scripted of newsman has to say this person who's at the white house is supposed to say this because zombies are taking over and the government doesn't know what to do again imagine the government not knowing how to handle a pandemic that'd be ridiculous Wait, no, that's insane um yeah no i think you're right about that and like i've i've done some projects that needed to look like that uh, but were were tightly scripted because the, uh, a lot of times they were vetted by an ad agency or something. And to me, it it was always harder to get the authentic performance out of somebody that way. And it was always easier to get the performance that was believable if you just had them be themselves and say it. And it's not it's not as easy as like, hey, here, say this in your own words. Um, uh, with with stuff like Burkittsville seven and shadow of the Blair, Witch, video palace, et cetera. It really is like, it's, it's partly in how you cast them. So you bring in actors. So, uh, you know, like, uh, bringing in, uh, Robert David Hall, who, who plays, uh, the, the filmmaker in Burkittsville seven, the guy who made white enamel. Um, and he blew up, he was on, um, CSI, the original CSI, like six months after we made Burkittsville seven. Um, but I thought he was a phenomenal actor to work with and literally, um, you know, so, so I, I gave him kind of the background story and then he went and did some research on his own and and read some interviews with other documentarians and kind of stole the way, the turn of phrases that they would have. But then, you know, when we brought him in, you know, he came in, went through makeup, sat down, and then I just interviewed him. I, I mean, literally, I'm I'm across from these people looking them in the eye, interviewing them. And if they're giving me incorrect information that doesn't work for the story, I, I kind of redirect them. But for the most part, I just let them yak. You know, for the most part, they've got the story. They got the role because they were convincing in that. And uh, no matter how much they talk, the, the more they talk, the better. We did a a similar project for the first Hellboy movie called the BPRD declassified and Joel McCrary was sort of in, in the kind of whistleblower role that John Maynard was in, in this one. And Joel, I remember going off uh, at one point in character about why he believed in gods and demons. And, and it wasn't something that I'd scripted, but, but the interviewer in that case, we had a real newsman named Jim Murray interviewing him. And when Jim asked him a question and he and he answered it completely sincerely with stuff that I had never written. And when he said it, I'm like, oh, all that's going in the show right there. That was all 100 percent solid gold. We're, we're putting it all in there. 
And when you get it like that too, you don't have to do it 40 times. You don't have to do 20 takes to get this right. You know, it's, it's usually not that many takes, but you are going to roll a, a bunch. And in the case of Perkinsville 7, we were literally filming on 16 millimeter film. So it was expensive to do it that way. Today, you know, we'd be shooting on a, you know, an Alexa or something and it wouldn't matter because we could just roll and roll and roll. But um, back then it was, it was film to get that look. And uh, that felt odd to me just because I'm from a world where film is such a precious commodity and you don't just let it roll but that was how we got what we got and uh you know I I wouldn't I wouldn't do it any other way because I think to do it another way would would destroy the, the authenticity yeah and again it's like goes to what I said about um you can watch it in both standpoints of you've seen the Blair Witch Project it is 100% real there was the witch that killed him or you could watch it as you know, hey, Josh and Mike killed Heather, you know, that fan theory and all that, and there is no witch and whatnot. And it's like both work, and, you know, that's I, the next question is how did you balance that? Because I read that you said you liked planting seeds of doubt, so you aren't necessarily sure who's the victim, who's the, you know, um, perpetrator and all that. So how did you necessarily balance between leaving it ambiguous enough that, Maybe there is the Blair Witch influencing them, or maybe it's not. Because, like I said, both work either way looking at it, in my opinion. Well, um, I think that I'm telling, in this case, a story from the point of view of someone who doesn't believe in the Blair Witch. So the the Chris Carrasco character, played by John Maynard, he's just in, into this serial killer. And then he has this crank theory about how this kid did the killings. And to him, it cheapens it to bring up the Blair Witch. So to tell it authentically from his point of view is not to even really get into the Blair Witch of it. It's more to just be about like, was it Rustin Parr or was it Kyle Brody? And um, hanging over that is the subtext, you know, uh, of uh, anyone who's uh, who's at the time everybody was was experiencing uh, Blair Witch mania it was all over the country so like you couldn't get away from all this mythology today it's a little bit more arcane but um, but I think that uh, hanging over it is this thought of like it's the Blair Witch you idiot like I, I feel like it's like the don't go in there you you know like when you're watching a horror movie like don't open the door don't go in there what are you doing and I feel like he's talking around the thing that everyone is kind of assuming is is kind of hardwired into it Um which is, it, it's kind of a, I, I mean, I don't even know that I very consciously did anything to balance that. I think that I am a natural skeptic, but I'm also fascinated by occult stuff. And I think that's this guy. I'm just writing him the way I am. That's really the truth. Right. Yeah, because, and like I said, I mean, I think it's perfect. It's like a great example of balancing it, not being too, because, and I said it in the commentary with um, Ed that, you know, it, a lesser movie would have been like really like over the top, you know, like instead of the bundle of sticks that had a couple bloody teeth and, you know, hair in it, it would have been, you know, Josh's head on a pike in front of the um, tent that morning. And, yeah. you know, in the case of this, it would be like, you know, there's no such thing as a witch. And then the witch appears and, you know, breaks his neck at the end of it or like something stupid like that. And it's like, it works out. It's like I said, it fooled my roommate into thinking like, wait, are you watching like a true crime doc about this serial killer? And it, Again, like you said, you know, it's the subtext hanging over it that it's anyone who knows anything yeah, it's, about it's it. Yeah, it's that it's it's part of the Blair Witch mythology, and you could have probably pulled any Blair Witch story out and done something like this. It's just you wouldn't have plausibly been able to talk to even indirect witnesses to any of it, you know, because like you know, 
the the woman playing Kyle Brody's sister, you know, at the time was probably in her fifties, uh, you know, and and so you know, like if you were doing you know the Robin Weaver story, anyone involved with that would be dead. So it would all be a historical re- reconstruction of it, and I think that there's probably a way to do it. Um, you know, uh, it just it true crime. Tr- firstly, true crime felt like the right way to go. Uh, in addition to being a giant fan of Frederick Wiseman and Titicut Follies, I'm also a, and was then a giant fan of Errol Morris. And Errol Morris had you know had done uh, the Thin Blue Line, if you ever saw that. And the Thin Blue Line basically created enough ambiguity around a murder that it got a guy taken out of prison like it, it got a guy a new trial um you know so i i don't know i mean i i kind of love hanging stuff on ambiguity in that way and having a story like this where it's not provable you know it's just out of our reach we can't talk to kyle brody and say did you do this and we couldn't have talked to kyle brody probably after he was in his 20s to find out what he had done but we could see that kyle brody was a scary person you know, like he became a scary person, but did he become a scary person because he had encountered uh, something horrible and evil or, you know, all, all of those things are kind of at play. But from our our hero's point of view and our hero is Chris Carrasco in this case, it's like, you know, Kyle Kyle Brody was the malefactor. Rustin Parr was was the simpleton. And, uh, you know, to me, that, that was a fun premise to set up and then have a bunch of people kind of hate him for setting it up. Does that make sense? Yeah. So and then with um, Kyle Brody, because, again, fascinating. And, you know, he's now become like a big part of the lore as well. Um, and I believe it was Curse of the Blair Witch. They don't mention him at all. There's the picture that's used as like the stock photo of him. Mm-hmm. But it's implied all the kids died. Like there was never it wasn't mentioned that there was a survivor. And then. Between that and the movie um, is when Sticks and Stones came out. And I believe that's when it mentions, oh, well, there was Kyle Brody. He was alive. The only comic um, showed Kyle in the hospital. And then Kyle um, was a, char- or a non-playable character, part of the story of the Rust and Par video game. So I can't figure out the timeline exactly. Were you the one to kind of propel or kind of create the Kyle Brody character as the potential killer or was the video game or one of these other ones. Oh, um, I, 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 I believe that I came up with the idea, but also I was the editor of sticks and stones. So <laughs> I might've, <laughs> I might've placed that idea at that time. Um, but uh, you know, the video game was, was being uh, produced concurrently and I had like never given the thing that uh, Kyle Brody says was something that was in the video game. Although I think it might've been cut, but I was trying as best I could to uh to make that connection and then dave stern was also writing his books at the same time and the books were uh dave and i were in regular communication at that time and dave's an amazing writer and uh and uh and so there was a lot of cross-pollination of ideas between the two okay because yeah i wondered that because i'm like thinking like okay the video game came out this time you know they they didn't really uh, from seeing playthroughs and all that like say he's a killer but like he's possessed by the witch in the game so i'm like oh wait is that canon to this and then you know they didn't get rid of the witch completely and then that dovetails in so you know it you guys did a great job making it all um fit in together yeah i mean i i wasn't i don't think i was in regular communication with the video game people but i did get their script and i and i think that they knew that i was doing a kyle brody related thing um then now moving on to the last one that was done unfortunately didn't i don't think they did anything for the 2016 blair witch they could have brought all bill barnes and all them back yeah um 
Now, with I saw in an interview you mentioned that when you did Shadow of the Blair Witch, you had an original version that then got a lot of it got scrapped when they went in and um, changed everything up when the studio. Um... All of it got scrapped. The whole there was a fully written script that was pitched. And uh, now that I've been around a lot longer, I understand why. Um, but a lot of it had to do, like, I think that they were, I think Artisan at the time kind of felt that they could do no wrong because Blair Witch had been so successful for them that they could kind of get away with anything. And so um, I, I, without taking a shit on anyone who likes Blair Witch too, because I'm not telling anyone not to like anything, um, but Blair Witch was rushed into production and I don't think that they had adequate an adequate amount of time to develop the idea, even the idea that they were trying to do. Uh, we could argue the merits of whether that idea would have been a worthy sequel to Blair Witch or whether it maybe would have been a better film just to kind of be its own standalone film. That would be my argument. I'm a huge fan of Joe Berlinger, so I, in no way am I, am I taking a shit on Berlinger. Um, but when artisans saw the original cut of Blair Witch 2, they were really not happy. And, uh, and they went into damage control. And one of the, um, one of the ripple effects of damage control was the special I was doing, uh, was like, like without even like, Hey, I'm sorry that you put a lot of work into that. It was literally like, yeah, we're just not doing that anymore here. We want you to do this other idea. And they fed me the idea that they wanted me to do, which, I wasn't against doing, I get it. I understand why they wanted to do it. Uh, I had a problem with the chronology of it. And I think it's because uh, I'm kind of a purist about the way found footage is done well and documentary is done well. Like I, I, I have kind of a bug up my ass about authenticity when it comes to these specific uh, mediums. And so I was like, okay, let me, let me understand this correctly. Uh, Blair Witch Project comes out in July of 1999. Uh, crazy guy go, goes crazy and a bunch of people get killed a few months later. Like, let's say October. Uh, the following October, new movie comes out based on those killings. An entertainment horror movie. Not, not like a serious docudrama even, which wouldn't happen either. But, like, you wouldn't crank it out that quickly. Um, and, and so I had... I had a real problem with saying that the killings were real and that here's, here's the true story behind the real killings. But to their credit, artisan actually was cool with some of the ideas I had, which I thought sold that idea, like having family members of the victims, uh, trying to stop the movie from being released. And I got literally zero pushback from them on that kind of stuff. And, uh, and, and so, I mean, it was fun to make, um, because we were emulating a kind of a Joe Berlinger, Bruce, Bruce Sanofsky kind of a look and feel, uh, that was fun to do. Um, you know, uh, it was only the second thing I was ever hired to direct. I was excited to be working. You know, I was, I, I, I think like the rest of the hacks and crew was before they had me do Burkittsville seven, I was sort of like, Hey, I can't wait to do something that isn't related to Blair Witch, but I was also happy to be doing stuff related to Blair Witch. I've never honestly wanted out of it. It's just, you know, as, as someone who wants to have a career that goes on for a while, you, you, you want to 
you you don't want to you, you you don't want to be so identified with one only one thing if you're but the truth is if you're identified at all you've won somewhere <laughs> like the the real loss is no one identifies you with anything and uh so you know uh what i would say to what 30 30 year old me is you know steer into that but um but anyway, I, I didn't really have a, a hard time with uh, with their ideas. It, it wasn't it wasn't offensive that they didn't want to do my thing. I understand that I was even then I understood I'm working for a marketing department. So, you know, I I was lucky that I got to make Burkittsville seven for a marketing department. You know, that that's a commercial for you. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. You know, I'm not trying to blow smoke up your ass here on this, but I thought uh, Shadow was better than the actual um, movie. Like that felt more in line with um oh thanks Blair Witch Project then the sequel and I, I don't hate the sequel but um I said on my Q&A with Ed when we were talking about it briefly that it is the weirdest sequel ever because the only sequel I can think of that is similar to it is um Freddy's Dead the Final Nightmare doing the deconstruction of mm. what is the Blair Witch and what's it like to be a fan but it's like that was like movie number seven like 10 years after when it became a parody not the then you rush into production 48 yeah, hours. Yeah, they'd already kind of kind of run the, the Nightmare on Elm Street movies into the ground and then below the ground and, you know, through the mantle of the earth, and then they did that. And then it was Wes Craven coming back, and you go, okay, well, the master's back, and you let him do his thing. Yeah, it just it just felt like a very weird, and, you know, I know um, some of the stuff, like the Secret of S forever and some of the deeper stuff. That, that is actually really cool, I think. Yeah, I think and that... a lot of it was, yeah, the studio... Um, fucking with Berlinger. I know like they, he had to shoot like the scene of them killing the campers in like his backyard, like a month before, like the premiere and all that. Like it was yeah. uh, just a weird, I mean, that, that kind of thing happens though. I mean, I can tell you having seen the original cut of the movie that it was better. Uh, I, I'm not going to say I, I don't, I don't hate Blair Witch two, and I wanted it to succeed. Um, but I don't, I don't especially love it. And I think that, you know, this, the script feels like an early draft. The dialogue feels early drafty. It's a little on the nose. It's a little hammy. Um, you know, but actually like the cast is great. It's got an yeah. amazing cast. Um, you know, it it was uh the 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 cinematography I think is really great. Like th- there are things to recommend the movie and um you know, Joe Berlinger I think uh is just one of our greatest living documentarians. And, uh, and so, you know, it bums me out to not love everything he did. Uh, I do think it's a, it's a, it's a banana pants, weird idea for a sequel. Um, maybe it would have worked. I don't know. You know, I, I mean, the original movie wasn't not banana pants. Like the original movie was a crazy idea. Maybe they were trying to, to make a sequel to a crazy idea with a crazy idea. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I know that it was financially minded i know that what they wanted was the gore and tits version of blair witch and blair witch isn't a gore and tits kind of a movie so um so, so i mean you do me, see mike's nipple at one point so that kind you do of yeah that is that's that's true <laughs> <laughs> that is true mike provides our only tit this is the first time we're seeing mike's chest uh, it's really hard to pick up on video actually um but uh no but you know I, I I feel like it was trying to sell something that wasn't Blair Witch. I also think that uh Joe Berlinger didn't like the first one. And uh which is totally I'm not telling anyone what to like and what not to like, but I think that if you don't like the first one and you're making a sequel, that's that's going to be a challenge because you're not going to steer into the instincts of the first one. Um 
but at the same time, also as a uh, someone who's you know tried to have some kind of a career in this business, I understand that a lot of times you're given and you're given a situation where you're like, oh, that that's a terrible, that's terrible. I don't have enough time to do that right, and blah blah blah. And some you know the devil appears on your shoulder and goes, you'll make it work. And then you're like, everyone full speed ahead. We're we're charging into this terrible idea. And, uh, and, you know, and sometimes those ideas work, you know, so, you know, when, when they work, you, you go, well, okay, so we were flying by the seat of our pants and it actually worked. This is a case where I don't think it worked as a movie as well as it could have. And I don't think it worked for audiences. And there is kind of this hue and cry among some people for like, we want to see the Berlinger cut. I, I don't know. I mean, like, I think you would just have to give all the raw footage to Joe Berlinger and let him try and cut a movie out of it again. Maybe he would find something in it, but I don't, I don't think the cut I saw, the early cut I saw was not that great. Um, but you know, it's, it's all subjective. Um, I, I, I think that the best choice that they could have made would have been what Ed and Dan wanted to do, which was to do sort of the origin story. Like a, it would have been a lot like the witch. Yeah. And uh, and when I saw the witch, I was like, "Yep, it it could have worked." Now I, I I may be flattering all of us to think that any one of us could have made a movie as awesome as the witch. I think the witch is you know one of the finest horror movies of the last twenty years. Agree, but, yeah. But um, but it would have been like that kind of look, that kind of feel, you know, the way you would have done that in nine in uh, two thousand two thousand one. But also Ed and Dan wanted to go make another movie before they came back to it. And I think Artisan at the time, Artisan was trying to do an IPO. And I think they were like, well, we can make, you know, a hundred million dollars this year or we can wait two years. I'd rather make it this year. So they they rolled the dice. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, the main thing is no matter what idea. Now, I know yeah, that that idea of um, that they pitch, you know, I know like the true hardcore Blair Witch fans would have liked or loved and all that. And I personally would love to see it, you know, come to fruition one day. I don't care how long I need to wait. You know, if you guys are in your seventies <laughs> making it, damn it, do it. Um, you'll be out. I don't know. Then the are you sure you want to wait till you're in your forties? Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm just, <laughs> no. we're, we're if, if I have to, I have to. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, it's also part of like the rebel nature of this movie or the original movie was no matter what happened. I, I don't foresee any scenario where, the Blair Witch Project turned into a franchise like, um, like you know, Amityville Horror, where they're on movie number like forty now. Yeah, you know, like and it's yeah. a directed video every year. I mean, the only thing I think if because if you did that movie like The Witch, I think you you would have gotten you know less people be like, oh, nothing's happening, and this isn't like a true horror movie. But then people would be confused. It's like, well, this is nothing like the original one. Well, and then if you did uh, just a shoddy remake of you know going into the woods again, like okay, oh, this is too much like the original. That I think it's. This movie was so unique, came in at the right time, was just so instrumental in, you know, giving a jolt to the horror industry at the time that, you know, it was a lightning in a bottle. You know, who knows? Maybe maybe I'm an idiot. Maybe this is why you know, I'll never um, be a successful producer or anything like that. But I think it's just like the first one and all the mockumentaries around it are this perfect concoction of horror that works great and i don't know if you know you, we saw like the backlash that came out immediately with it you know and i think very unfair bashing of it that i think that part of that um no it would have been inevitable no matter what they did i mean they did a like you said a banana pants crazy sequel like let's do the furthest thing away from the original one we could yeah. and then when they did 
hey, let's just do a traditional sequel, you know, albeit almost 20 years later, you know, that movie did just, you know, as well. Not very well. It made its money back, but, you know, didn't do the impact that the first one did. Well, I think it's hard to surprise somebody the same way, you know, like it's hard. It's hard to be surprising in the same way more, more than one time, which is why I actually think it was smart of them to abandon found footage for the sequel. Um, although, you know, it could be argued now, I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty. but the paranormal activities managed to manage to stay in the found footage world and really work it for a long time and probably more than anyone else ever has. And some of those movies were really great. You know, I, I loved the first one and I really, really loved the second one. I was surprised at how much I loved the second one because I went to see it thinking I was going to hate it and I loved it. But, um, you know, I, I do think it's, the in in defense of the backlash against Blair Witch, um, you know, it wasn't a movie that was made with a giant audience in mind, but it became kind of a water cooler thing. And so I think people felt like they had to see it so they could be up on culture. And a lot of those people didn't like it. And and then when they cranked out the sequel as fast as they did. So the first one was in theaters in July of ninety nine. The sequel was in theaters in October of 2000, and they didn't start making that movie until like January or February writing it. So, um, you know, so they wrote it in a month or two, maybe max. And then they, uh, you know, they filmed it very quickly and it was in, you know, before you know it, it was in theaters. And sometimes that shit works, you know, Uh, supposedly Nightmare on Elm Street 3 was written over a weekend. Could happen. Um, you know, but it was written by Frank Darabont, um, you know, so that you got that going for you. Um, but, uh, I, I just think that, um, when, when the sequel came out, I think that among the people who went to see the original and didn't like it, they weren't going to go see a sequel among the people who went to see it, the original and liked it. They knew enough about it to know that it was like a handcrafted product made by these, you know, made by Ed and Dan um, you know, with love and care and, and, and hard work. And you can't do that that quickly. I think that the, the, the sequel was cranked out so fast and felt like a cynical, it felt like what it was. Um, you know, it was a cash grab. And, uh, and I think that audiences just didn't respond to that, but you know, Hey, look, you're allowed to hate whatever you want to hate and like whatever you want to like. Honestly, if you're doing good work, some people are going to hate it. That's just everything that you love passionately with your heart there are some people who despise it so yeah, yeah i've gotten a few downvotes on my blair witch videos so screw you people uh, <laughs> but no um yeah and i again it's just you know who knows maybe you could say any little variable would have changed um with this that or the other thing maybe then we would have had you know like parallel activity may had you know a bunch of different sequels the franchise would i mean it's still going when you look at the Hunt a Killer that just came out, you know, um, they mm. had the Blair Witch references in um, Ed's last episode of Supernatural. Um, he had the video game two years ago and the, you know, the movie um, and one guard from like five years ago now. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the movie is, you know, the franchise is still, you know, abound, not nearly to the. I mean, they're developing a TV series. Like, I don't know if it'll happen, but there's a TV series. The thing is that the name Blair Witch is a known name. And I think if you have something that is a known name, then that's enough of a property for someone to roll the dice. Um, you know, I, I'm assuming with the 2016 movie, we've probably seen the last theatrical feature for a minute and maybe that's okay. Um, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, like I, I, I kind of think of myself as the first mega fan of it in that, you know, when, 
when, or maybe not even the first, but one of the first, uh, when Greg Hale told me the idea in his, you know, his, his place in downtown Orlando, um, I, um, I would, I bought every second of it and I was eating out of his hand. I was like, I want to, I, I, let me do something on this. Like, I just love this idea. And it, it just clicked in so many ways for me. And I, and then later after it got made, I saw it having that same effect on audiences, you know, and that's it. You know, I think that the same reason it worked for audiences is why the idea worked for me. And that's, you know, Ed, Ed and Dan's genius in coming up with it. And Greg's too. Again, I think Greg Hale doesn't get enough credit. He does now because he, we said it here. Because of me. Yeah. I'll just put that, that'll be the, on the poster. Well, I mean, I think, I think Greg Hale and Mike Manello are both kind of uh, un, unsung heroes of, of this. And, they, you know, Mike didn't work on the actual shoot. Um, but he, you know, he had a, a few crazy ideas. Like, what if we set up a website for this thing? You know, little things that maybe ended up being beneficial down the line. Potentially. Yeah. Well, that, yeah, I mean, that's the thing with this. It's amazing. Like, I read a statistic, supposedly, like, half of Americans who were, like, you know, interviewed about it, like, thought it was real. And, well, that was know, the thing. I, I remember talking to people who were pissed off that the that it was fake. And I'm like, so you wish that these people were actually dead? That That's not right. I would get into arguments with people about it, too, who would, who would swear that it was based on folklore. And I'm like, I made it up. I made the part you're talking about. I made that shit up. I named Ellie Kedward. You never heard that name before I named her. That's because I came up with that name. You know, I made it all up. Yeah, well, I think that was the genius part because it's like, that, okay, so fine. You know, okay, the actors are alive and all that. But for like a while, you guys were keeping up the whole facade of, okay, well, the, we, we made that part. But, you know, the witch is real. You know, the, again, yeah. going back to the Oni comic, I'll make that video one day. Um, but you know, it has the framing devices of people, you know, the one comic of like the brothers being pissed off that no one's believing their stories. Like, yeah, you goddamn Hollywood producers, no one's going to believe us now. And then, you know, Hey, we found this manuscript, you know, whatever now, because people like the movie, you know, now we can actually <laughs> publish this. And even on like the commentary, you know, they're not completely giving up the, you know, goat, so to speak, of, uh, you know, like, okay, no, 100% of this is fake. And it's, again, it's a testament that even when people found out that Heather, Josh, and Mike were alive and well, that's like, okay, well, there was really a rest in part. Kyle Brody was a tragic figure, potentially, yeah. who, you know, died in a mental asylum. You know, there's a kid who was drowned. There, you know, a bunch of dead I, kids. I do think that it's like, I, I think that in this day and age, you could never get away with any of that because Reddit would figure you out in about five minutes and expose everything that was bullshit about your story. Like, yeah, I mean, all you had to do is like, you know, hey, you know, r slash Burkittsville. Do you guys have witches out there? No. Boom, done. Yeah, and I, but I, but I do think though. I mean, like, it worked in that way in that kind of War of the Worlds kind of. Uh, it's it's not really a hoax, but we're not saying it's not a hoax, and we're letting you believe it's a hoax for a minute. Or we're letting you believe it's real for a minute. Uh, but I, I think that, you know, like paranormal activity, I think is another good example where it's like, no one thought that was real, but people people dug it because it was made in a way that helped you suspend your disbelief. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think that, um, I think you can do that. I mean, that was what we tried to do with Video Palace too. Uh, you know, it's like nobody, I don't I don't think anyone thinks Video Palace, that there's any any truth to it. But we just want to tell a story in a, in a in a language that 
makes it easier for you to suspend your disbelief and go along with it and think, well, if I was in that situation, that's how I'd act. To me, you know, one of my pet peeves in movies in general is when people do stupid stuff so that the movie plot can work um, because the writer has a plot that they love or the studio or whoever is married to the plot. So you have to have people do dumb shit so that it'll it'll work. And, And to me, the challenge is always how do you have characters do the smartest thing that that person would do in that circumstance? which is not always easy because sometimes the smart thing is fuck y'all I'm out of here. And, um, but, uh, you know, uh, the, to me, that's, that's the challenge and that's what makes something like that more fun. And that's also what I'm less in love with Blair, Witch two about is that I don't, I don't feel like all of those characters are doing the smartest thing that those people would do in that circumstance. You know what I mean? Exactly. I mean, and that's when I'm watching it. Like, you know, they get out of the woods. The um, brighter couple has the miscarriage. And now they're just going to hang out for a while with this guy who they just met and smoked pot with and had a weird yeah. moment. It's like, why, you know, like you guys are supposed to be smart. Okay, maybe Kim director and then um, I'm blanking on the other one's name, um, the, who was a Wiccan. Like, mm-hmm. okay, you guys are kind of weird outcasts. It's like, no, nah, you're just supposed to. There we go. Um, like, you guys are supposedly the, like the intellectuals. Like, why the hell are you sticking around and all that? But. Yeah, I mean, people criticize, like, oh, why would they keep filming? It makes sense, though, in this facet that's like Heather's a documentarian who, or wannabe documentarian. But I think they, yeah, they do explain it in the movie why they keep filming, you know? Yeah, it feels natural. And and Josh has that one scene about how it's fun looking through the viewfinder because everything doesn't feel real anymore. And And I actually feel like that's one of the more poignant moments. And it's just Josh, you know, improvising, doing what what he does so well. Um, but it makes you, to me, that answers that question because I feel like you, you know, uh, there are found footage movies like for instance, quarantine, uh, and you know, which is based on a Spanish movie called wreck. And in both cases, it's a news cameraman, uh, who's filming what's going on. And so you kind of accept that he would keep filming when crazy shit started happening. Cause he's a news cameraman. You know, I don't know if it was an Ed and Dan idea or if it was just a Josh, uh, improv idea but having that line in there to me it makes you go okay you know like if you're a person who's having a hard time with reality hold I can tell you from personal experience uh, if I'm operating ca- a camera at an event or something it doesn't really feel like I'm there it feels yeah. like I'm it feels like I'm watching it on TV you know yeah and that's the thing and you know it works out great and you know it, again you can nitpick any of these things so it's like you said with um when you're doing the interviews, if someone flubs a line, like I know um, in what, I think it's Curse, you know, um, Bill Barnes says, oh, you know, all seven of those kids were boys. And, you know, you could be like, ah, oh, that's a mistake. And it's like, okay, whatever, you know, it's just an old guy who, yeah. is, you know, and in, in, in my head can with that, you know, obviously he's never been like really interviewed except when these kids went missing and all that. So he's like, oh, I'm not good on camera. I'm going to fuck up talking about something. Yeah. Or in this case, it's, yeah, it's pretentious filmmaker students who are like, Oh, I'm filming something, and then, you know, and then, yeah, you add the layer of, oh, now I feel a little insulated from this as I'm starting to get, like, afraid. Now you add that layer, and it, you know, feels realistic on that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think when you decide to make something that's found footage is that you're trying to create a sense of reality. And so, you know, if if you're Aaron Sorkin and you're writing something that's, like, all stylized dialogue or you're David Mamet or something like that, you know, like you can't do that and found footage. You can obviously make a stylized movie. There's nothing wrong with that or, you know, stylized anything, uh, stage play or whatever. Like style is fine, but the style you've chosen with found footage is is absolute realism. 
And so exactly. it's, it, you know, it's, it's a, it's a always a hard balance when, when people want to have it both ways, you know, uh, I, I won't name the movies cause I don't want to, I don't want to call out the ones that pissed me off, but like, you know, when you have characters walk 50 feet away from the, from the camera and they're not mic'd and you can still hear them talking. I'm like, Hmm. Or when there's, when there's a uh, non-diegetic score going on underneath, I'm like, where's that music coming from? You know, I, I understand that to some people it's just a style. It's just a look, you know, and there were movies like Chronicle, which was done in a found footage style. And for some reason I just rolled with it, you know, like I was like, okay, you know, like it, it, it is, it's found footage, but it kind of isn't like, it's, you know, it, it, it's kind of just using it as, as a, as a technique, not as a, it's not serious about what it is. Cause you know, you'll drive yourself crazy on stuff like that where there's multiple cameras filming something and you're like, so how did they get all this footage and where did all the footage come from and who compiled it and synced it up? Like if you start thinking about the, 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 just the work that would go into it to make found footage. I mean, that's one of the reasons I, I like wreck and quarantine is that it's like, it's just one tape. It's one tape that's in the camera. The only gimme that you have to kind of roll with is like, well, the tape would probably only be a half hour, but okay, fine, whatever. They, they, they had a weird camera that, you know, like if you can find one camera that could roll an hour and a half, then you can you can go with it. Yeah, well, it's like when the, the, they had the ADR, the line, and of how they're saying, oh, we have so many fucking batteries, you know, in here. It's like, okay, that's how we get away with how are they filming for, you know, seven days in the woods. And yeah, yeah. even yeah. then, it's just like, whatever, they don't have the cameras on the entire time. Because, I mean, I, you see, obviously, it ends up just being an hour and 20 minutes, you know. And half, like 20 minutes of that, you know, is the first day. And then they're at the hotel. So it's like, okay, they charge it up. They're not filming the entire time type thing. I can buy that, you know. No, you kind of, I mean, I feel like you don't have to explain everything. Um, But yeah, I mean, like I can tell you from personal experience that the light that was mounted on the camera um, on on the CP-16 took a battery belt that like you had to wear all the way around your body and after about two hours was dead. I don't even think you could get two hours. It might have been more like 40 minutes. God, I can, I, and that's like watching, I've had to watch Blair Witch Project probably like freaking 12 times between um, preparing wow. with you, preparing with Ed, and then I had just watched it randomly at the beginning of October for like Halloween time. So I'm getting really sick of this goddamn movie. <laughs> <laughs> Never going to watch it again. Um, but no, I'm just like watching, like seeing like, you know, them with their big packs, you know, and then Mike with all like the dad equipment. I'm like, oh my God, these poor bastards are like, I'm surprised they, I'm surprised they didn't act like that. That's what the sequel should have been is the three actors chasing you guys down one by one and murdering you. Like, what did you <laughs> do in the woods? We got a fucking fruit I'm, basket. My, I'm like, Hey, it wasn't my idea. Go find Ed and Dan. Here's their address. That would have been, no, now I want to see that sequel. Get, you know, see if um, Heather, Josh, and Mike want to get together to do that. <laughs> and actually, the, you know, we can have this document that this is my idea now. So if they do it, I'm going to sue them. But if they wait another 20 years, it'd be really great then to have Heather come back as the witch because you know, she'll be older at that point. You know, so do like <laughs> a weird time loop. That'd be crazy. Yeah, Heather, 40 years older than she was when she made the first one. Yeah, so... Well, if they do that, I'm suing the crap out of them, and I'll have you subpoena to be like, yeah, he told me that idea. I'll delete this file and pretend that I've never met you. All right, well, I think we'll wrap it up. So, um, again, thank you very much for coming on, um, neighbor. We'll um, have a grill out when it's safe in 2032. Let's do it. Um, yeah. yeah.
Yeah, yeah. Well, my, my son, who's two now, he'll be able to drive a, drive me over there. So, all right. Well, again, thank you for coming on. Um, my I'll pleasure. put a, yeah, the link down below for Video Palace. You know, check it all out and keep on watching when I slowly work my way through everyone who's associated with this yeah. movie. <laughs> I'm finding the Rusty Parr guy. I'll find You're next, him. Manello. Uh, anyway, I'll talk to you later. All right. Thank you. Have a good night.